Hello, friends, and welcome to Something to Talk About. I'm Amber Barrett, and today Vanessa Hawkins and I, along with Julie Wiggins and Sarah Price, will continue talking together about the book of Ecclesiastes and the unique ways it enlightens our lives. Our discussion for this morning comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and centers around what it means to avoid foolish responses to the hardships of life. But first things first, ladies, let's talk for just a minute about the first book we remember falling in love with and what made it so great. That is a challenging question for me because I love books. Um, I really can't remember the first book I fell in love with. My parents tell me about a book that as a toddler I carried around and demanded that they read, and it was a Chippendale book or something. But um, I do remember always wanting to read books with happy endings Mm -hmm. and most often uh, books that were set either in history or in a make-believe land. So um, as far as a book that comes to mind um, that matches that, um, it was actually a series called The Chronicles of Prydain by uh, Lloyd Alexander. And I love these books because of the variety of interesting and unusual characters and the desire of the main characters to do what is right in face of, of what is evil. And I love watching these very human characters grow and ultimately defeat the evil in their land. Yeah. Have you gone back and read any of those in adulthood? Multiple times. Yeah. In fact, my kids even said that was their favorite book. Did you, did you <laughs> read those to, to them growing mm-hmm. up? Yeah. Them to the, that's, share that. That's fun. I um, also found this a very difficult question because I am a big reader as well. But um, the first, I'm, I'm, I'm just having license here and I'm picking two. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> and I'm almost picking authors, not really books. So Sarah, you're just going to have totally to totally off. Me. <laughs> okay. The first book I really remember, I love fiction and I love it. Um, like kind of like Julie said, like, I love that it's a, a made up world. Um, but I really find books, my connection to people. And that's how I explore other people's perspectives and, um, just kind of different points of view or different places, experiences people have had. Um, so my first book I remember is Circle of Friends by Maeve Benchy, and um, kind of appropriate to today's topic. Um, she is really hurt and has, there's a lot of hardship in that book um, because of other people's actions towards her, but there's also a lot of beauty in that book as well. So um, I will admit that I would like to be Mini Driver, maybe. Um, <laughs> I really love her, very drawn to her characters. Yeah. And I think I watched the movie and then read this book and totally got into Maeve Benchy and read all her books. Um, the second that is very immersive for me is a series called The Cat Who. And every book is The Cat Who. Mm. The first one is The Cat Who Saw a Cardinal. And it is a murder mystery series about a bachelor and his cat. And his cat is a Siamese cat that always solves the murder. Um, So it's just very lighthearted and fun and uh, just kind of an escape as opposed to a a perspective, I guess. I like escape books. And I'm liking getting all your all's uh, recommendations (laughs) here. Well, mine was from when I was just much younger. So I, I can remember as a kid, Liking the book, The Little Engine That Could. Mm. That was mm-hmm. my favorite book. And for the life of me, I can't comb my mind to figure out what was going on in my world. There was something I was trying to learn. <laughs> I don't know, but I just remember loving that book. And I would read it over and over and over again. I just couldn't get enough of it. And I just, I think I can. I think I can. I was, <laughs> youngest <laughs> child. Youngest <laughs> child. I think I can. I think I will. That was my book. Mountain. Yeah. yeah. That was it. That was a good one. 
Oh, I loved Anna Green Gables, and I love Lucy Maud Montgomery. So I do remember just as a child sitting down on the couch, it was that same sort of escape from, not that there was anything major to escape from, but it was just a retreat to this beautiful place where love and relationships and friendships and humor and all of that combined. So I really enjoyed her books when I was young. I would say that a story filled with goodness and hope, like y'all are describing, they lift our hearts and they inspire us oftentimes to live well. But in contrast, a story laden with pain or evil weighs our hearts down and can tempt us to live in ways that are harmful to ourselves or to others. In some ways, the book of Ecclesiastes is a hard story to read. I mean, the author Solomon commits much of his text to an honest assessment of the vanities of life and the pain that accompanies them. As we come to chapter 7 today, we find ourselves a little more than halfway through the book, and still Solomon has not really switched gears. He begins this chapter with statements like, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. And, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. That second statement in particular can be hard to make sense of. We've talked about it, this strange dichotomy, a bit in previous podcasts as it relates to appropriately mourning the loss of what God gave to mankind in the Garden of Eden in order that our hearts can be made truly glad in the restoration of all things through the saving work of Christ. There is, however, the danger of living without that hope in such a way that as Solomon says in chapter 7, verse 7, oppression will drive the wise into madness. When oppression has the last word, the wise grow weary, and wisdom is replaced with foolishness. Solomon describes in our passage today the various foolish responses to the hardship of life. He specifically names hasty anger and pride, along with naive nostalgia, and contrasts them with the wisdom of carefully considering both adversity and prosperity as they come from the hand of God. I think all of us here at this table can attest to the fact that when the hardships of life are multiplied, such as they have been for all of us in 2020, it is hard not to allow our knee-jerk, foolish reactions to rule the day. Vanessa, what are some of the ways you see us in our current culture reacting to life right now with hasty anger and pride or naive nostalgia? Yes, if we've learned anything from the preacher in Ecclesiastes, we've learned that nothing is all one way. There's always something in our cultural moment praiseworthy. There's always something to be grieved. And the writer keeps us off balance a bit by keeping exceptions to common wisdom before us, pointing us to the need for a balanced view amidst all of our fallenness. And so I'm encouraged by testimonies of wisdom gained in this season, testimonies of the Lord's faithfulness to lovingly reveal disordered affections and idols and the need to reprioritize family and, and time with him. I, I've heard that a lot, and that's been my story as well. And many have learned to cling to the Lord in new ways. They've deepened their walk with him. And those stories have been plentiful, and they're good, and they're glorious. And I'm grateful for those testimonies. And so I, I wanted to acknowledge that that need for balance that Solomon calls us to. And at, and at a meta level... Uh, my prevailing emotion surrounding just the upheaval and polarization in our cultural moment is just profound sorrow. I'm saddened at how deeply entrenched we seem to be in our own views and against each other. 
We seem more prone to attack people than issues. We refuse to listen to views outside of our own echo chambers of those who are saying the same things that we're saying. And that's the outworking of pride. It's, it's being so settled in our own opinions that we refuse to love others well by listening. And I'm just saddened by that. Um, when we're talking about cultural foolishness, that doesn't require us to just look outward. Whether we like it or not, culture has a reciprocal effect, meaning that we affect culture and culture affects us. We act foolishly culturally when we reject the wisdom of God's word as it pertains to how we are to engage it. The most basic of principles of how we are to engage culture is that we are to love the Lord our God and love our neighbors as ourselves. The great commandment, right? So love shows itself in goodwill expressed towards others. It, it looks for points of connection through empathy. It refuses to divide over fear and suspicion. And we see so much of that right now. And it, it longs more for the newness we are promised together in Christ than it does for the comforts of the good old days that Solomon warns us against. So it's, it's tempting to respond to some of the hatefulness in our cultural moment with just these quick zingers and these one-liners and weaponized words to win arguments and to become a part of the polarization that we hate witnessing. When I'm finding myself being more quick-tongued than I would like to be, I have to remind myself that winning arguments and loving people well are diametrically opposed. One is filled with pride, the other seeks the good of another. And I can't focus on both at the same time. And, and so I think that's where I have to come back to over and over again in this cultural moment, just reminding myself of that truth. Our foolish reactions flow out of a, the prideful belief that we know better than God and we can control the destinies of our lives and our world. So which of the reactions that I've described disturbs you? And, and how do you find yourself reacting to cultural foolishness with foolishness of your own? Well, I just want to say amen to all your words. I, it's a lot of what really bothers me right now. Um, I feel like it is just um, the, the idea of a cancel culture and just the divisiveness over things that, um, that matter, but maybe are not necessarily uh, specifically spoken to in scripture as being right or wrong. Um, and, it, and it creeps into the church. And I think things like professions we choose or how we are raising our kids or how we're managing friendships and our families. Those are complicated things. And while the, the Bible definitely provides guidance and principles to do those things well, it does not say that there's one right job to have and another wrong job to have, or um, there's one way to school your children, or there's one way to interact with your neighborhood. Um, and so I think it's just really hard to, it's hard to know when to be even more divisive and call friends out when they are um, making their choice of how, and spirit-led choice of how to live their lives and forcing it to application onto other people who may not be called to the same things that they are. Um, and so that creeps into even our um, church circles. And I think it's when we should be living in community and supporting each other's differing decisions, there become factions even within the church that if you don't agree with them, 
you know, they, they want nothing to do with you. I so agree with that, Sarah. Thanks. Um, I'd like to come at this from a little bit different angle. Um, for those of you that hold everything in, that um, retreat, um, I mean, I'll start out by saying I, my tendency in any kind of conflict or disagreement is to run the other way. And so um, now having said that, I, I am most disturbed by that anger and pride response. And I think it's largely because that's how I'm responding inside. But um, you may never see that, but inside there's all sorts of junk going on. And, uh, and just to give a little background, I, I grew up in a home, a Christian home, but my parents believe that you can solve any problem just by talking about it. We, we can just, and so there was never, I mean, we yelled at each other, my brothers and sisters, but it, it's still that pervasive was we can solve it here. And I internalized that self-control. I can do this. I can remember, now y'all are going to crack up at this, but I can remember as a newlywed being in a Bible study and thinking, uh, we were doing a study on marriage and one of the chapters was how to have a fair fight. And I thought, couples fight? <laughs> uh. I mean, y'all, I, I just, that was foreign to me, absolutely. So all that's been going on this year has brought back a lot of the, the growing process that God has brought me through. Um, I, I would internalize everything. Solomon talks about having a proper consideration of adversity. And it took me many years to learn about who God is and accept his sovereignty and everything. And I am still learning. Um, I still want to process the situation. I still want to make my plan and work my plan anytime I encounter uh, difficulties or conflict. And that's not a bad thing, but I can't always do it as quickly as I want to in the situation. And when that happens or when I become frustrated or I'm tired or despaired, I, I internally, I go right back to that, okay, I'm going to fix it. And so I, I can't, I know that. And so remembering that God sees a picture of our world in ways I never will helps me to try to rest in him. Yeah, that is very good. And just to be able to look back and see what was in childhood, goes into marriage, what goes into marriage, goes into other aspects of life and Absolutely. how that all plays together, which you're prone to do. I think, like y'all have all said, it's the uh, ha hasty anger and pride. And to me, it, it, it doesn't take account for personal weakness or sin. So sometimes when I hear people speak so vehemently against, and oftentimes it is a person as opposed to an issue, I think, do you have like no concept that you yourself probably have a similar weakness or a similar struggle? It just mm -hmm. plays itself out in a different way. So that bothers me. Um, so when I read or hear those type of angry statements, uh, I, it's hard for me to give any validity to the person making them because, and they might be saying something wise, but I have a hard time, ex I mean, behind their anger, there might be a, a nugget of truth, but I have a hard time accepting it because I think if you don't have any better view of your own self, I have a hard time accepting what you're saying. Now, I mean, saying that, it's true that I do the same thing. In fact, right there, I will take my view of that person doing that thing and turn that sort, same sort of, you know, derisive attitude towards them. Because obviously I think, well, I don't really do that. I have an appropriate view of my sin, so on and so forth, and my anger. And it makes me think, think of this time 
uh, two summers ago, and I was, was taking this bike ride with my husband, John, and my oldest son, Creed, who was 13 at the time. And it was a, a ride across Georgia, and so you biked every day and got to the end and camped and so on and so forth. So on the final day, you know, Creed had really kind of caught in his groove. He learned how to ride faster. We were riding with the pack, you know, and there were some folks that rode by us, and they were, and I just, my little competitive engine comes out sometimes, and they <laughs> rode by us. I thought, Creed, we can keep up with them. Come on, come on, let's get on the back, and you, you just, you ride with this group, and you, anyway, so you, we're riding with him. I said, I think we can pass him. So we passed him, and he's feeling good, too, like I'm accomplishing something, so we're riding hard. Well, it was towards the end of the day. And it was the very last day, and we get through the finish line, and I'm just feeling good about myself. You know, I'm feeling good about myself, and we stop our bikes, and the bikes that we ride, road bikes, they have shoes that clip into the pedals. And so, you know, you just, I've been riding one forever. You have to be aware of how you take your feet off, feet out. And so we're, we get through the finish line, and, you know, I'm feeling good, and Creed's standing there. And I turned around to look behind me, and I just did not think about taking my feet out. And before I knew it, I had flipped over <laughs> upside down with my bike in the air above oh, my no. head, keep massive wipeout in front of everybody. Oh, honey, honey, are you okay? Oh, all that pride that I had about how great I was, and I rode past you, and I beat you, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it just was like flushing it down the toilet. And I really, in that moment, said, Lord, okay, thank you. Like, that is a gift of grace sometimes, mm -hmm. to be humbled. And mm -hmm. I think that the Lord does that in the midst of all the things that we feel towards other people. You know, then you all of a sudden you're like, whoa, yep, I do the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. and, and you receive that humility. It's helpful in, in dealing with foolish responses in our life um, to take a moment to think through the faulty theology that lies behind them. So in this chapter, Solomon does set forth two things that we need to have straight in our minds and hearts when it comes to our view of God in seasons of life like the year 2020. And Julie, you made mention to this already, but we, we can't make straight what God has made crooked. We can't fix what is broken, and neither can others around us. Only God can. In fact, not only that, we can't even know perfectly what should be fixed or how to fix it. Our wisdom is limited. So how does Solomon's assertion, Solomon's assertion that we can't control our lives or our world, that doesn't mean we don't engage it, but we can't control it or even have the wisdom to know what should be done, how do those things begin to curb your own foolish reactions? I'm going to pull the older woman card here. Um, <laughs> Solomon's words affirm what I have experienced in life. Yeah. Um, I cannot control my life for anyone else's. And even though I've lived many years, I sure don't have the wisdom to fix anything. Yeah. Um, I've also seen that when anyone reacts foolishly, it usually makes things worse. We are like those children on the playground, knocking each other down, speaking wrongly at one another mm. as we try to be king of the hill. I can only begin to curb these foolish reactions that I have as God is in his grace brings to mind scriptural truths like these words from Solomon. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? I have to pay attention to God, who he is, what he's teaching me. I have to meditate on his work, what he's already done. He's constantly making all things new. And I need to take all my crooked stuff straight to him first. I often ask God to help me see my own foolishness more quickly so that I can repent and then walk more in his ways. Mm. That's really great, Julie. Um, I think uh, the corona pandemic has really distilled down a lot of those things. Mm -hmm. um, for me, particularly, um, just that right now, 
we make choices for our children, um, how we're going back to school, how we come to church, mm-hmm. how John goes to work, what I do with my, you know, how out in the community I am. And I can make what seems like a wise decision today. And in a week, we'll be told yeah. that that was the stupidest thing I could have done um, and that I should change it. So I think right now, particularly, it's very clear that I do not know uh, the, the perfectly right way to go about just functioning as a family right now. Um, so, but over the course of um, particularly having children for me um, and being at home, having play dates, having a lot of my interaction be with other moms, um, a lot of the division in the mom world anyway is, is often gossiping about other moms or criticizing other moms, um, making assumptions about why they're doing what they're doing. Um, and I have had one experience where I was, I think the criticized one, um, when I had Hannah, she was not a flexible baby and she, her bedtime was 6 PM and her nap time was 1230. And that meant door shut lights off at those times, not five minutes after, um, and, or she would be screaming. Um, and so I would leave play dates like, it's 12.15, I have to go, (laughs) throw things in the car, like throw her in the car. I know that my friends thought that I, it was my nap schedule that was really important. And um, Mm. I had my second who was way more flexible, a friend of mine who has since moved away from Augusta. So, and if, if you're listening, I don't know, it's probably not you. Um, She had her second who was much more like Hannah where her first was much more flexible. And about two months in, she apologized. And she said, I have really been judging you because you would just, like, leave. Like, you were so strict about nap time. But she goes, but I understand now. It wasn't you at all. Um, So just that kind of humility in our relationships Mm -hmm. with other people, Mm -hmm. um, understanding that they might have a different perspective. They might have different... um, different struggles, different personalities they're dealing with. Um, and I think it's just important. Just my, I will admit my children are back at school face to face, but that does not mean that that's the right choice for every family Mm -hmm. that we interact with. So just that humility of my way is not always the right way, I think is really important. And seeing people with God's perspective, that the Lord loves them. And even if they're not making the right decision, it's not my place necessarily to call them out on it um, and viewing them with the same mercy and grace that he has for them can change my interactions with them um, in a significant way. Yeah. Yeah. When you have a a larger perspective to think, okay, the Lord understands a lot of things I do not understand about other situations and, and such. And he calls people to different things in different ways. And to think that I have figured all of that out and how all that works together. And therefore I have the right to call people for to, to particular things. It changes the, the whole idea. I know for me, sometimes, you know, it's ridiculous to say out loud, but I guess it's kind of true. If I can't figure it out or if I can't do something about it, well then, you know, it's kind of hopeless, which is ridiculous. Or maybe, okay, I can't figure it out. I can't do something about it. Well, these people that I really respect they can't figure it out. They can't do anything about it. Well, these people, you know, it, 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 the list goes on. I just, I'm looking constantly. I mean, I start by looking at myself. I look at other people, whatever. And I'm not looking 
at the Lord and just reminding myself, you are so much wiser than me. You are so much more powerful than me in every in, in ways I can't even comprehend. And what is helpful to me in that is it keeps me from when I'm re- reminded about who he is in those areas compared to who I am. It does take out some of that whole self-righteousness. And then it also, my other thing could be, well, I just want to quit. You know, I just want to have sort of this depressive view of life. But to think, no, the Lord is on the move. You know, he's always been on the move. And I'm connected to him. And therefore, I have to keep moving. And there is hope in that. It might not look anything nearly like I think it would. But it helps me from just sort of throwing up my hands and and hiding my head, you know, um, in the sand. I don't know if you can do both of those things at one time. <laughs> it's pretty hard, but uh, so that helps me to keep those things straight. Well, it's like Sarah said. I mean, just this moment in time is one that has, I think, caused a lot of us who hold on for dear life and control mm. to recognize yeah. our inability to do that. Yeah. And so, in this moment, I'm absolutely convinced that I'm not God, that I cannot control my life. Intellectually, philosophically, I got it. I mean, I've got that concept. Now, however, it's those rubber meets the road moments that challenge how deeply I I think, you know, I I really believe what I think I believe. So I've I've learned from just trying to control outcomes. You know, Julie said that, you know, she's going to pull the old lady card, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm coming in second behind you, Julie. And I have, I've just learned from trying to control outcomes that there's almost always some underlying fear behind my need to control. And it, it, it presents as I'm going to control it and I'm going to plan it to the nth degree, but it's really fear. It's, it's that painful emotion that arises at the thought that I may be harmed or made to suffer. So we, we try to maneuver to avoid what we fear, that God isn't really good that he just might allow suffering, that what he allows is arbitrary and not really what's best for us because we know what's best for us. I I love Spurgeon's um, quote, God is too good to be unkind and too wise to be mistaken, as Spurgeon said, but our our fearful control tells on us and shows Mm -hmm. that we haven't fully embraced that truth, even when we superficially think we have. I remember (laughs) we had homeschooled our girls for seven years, And it was a big transition to go from the corporate workplace to home with them. So that was a big transition. But when it was time to put them in public schools, the Lord was making it quite clear. And my husband got it. I heard it. I didn't want to do it. And that's that's just the truth of it. I was terrified of my children going into public school. I can remember this moment in my prayer time. I used to pray in my basement on my floor that's where the Lord and I met morning after morning for many, many years. And I remember that morning, it was a fight because I was arguing. I was, I, I, <laughs> I had come to terms with, painfully, the Lord had brought, <laughs> brought it to um, my awareness that I was going to have to do that, put the kids into public school. And I remember saying, they don't even allow prayer in that school. I've poured scripture into these girls and I've taught them your ways. I, 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 I've done uh. all of these things. And why are you throwing them to the wolves? I, I, I just remember being so upset. But what I now recognize was at my core, I really didn't believe he would take care of them. I didn't really believe that. If you asked me um, if I believed that, I would have told you I did, but I, I didn't really believe it. And so it was that moment that proved that I, I did, didn't really believe it. And so... In his kindness, he proved over and over again that he would. And 
that's that whole experience thing. I think that's what is, is teaching me over time to let go is that I've got a history. I've got a history of his faithfulness in those moments that I'm terrified. We've talked over and over again on this podcast about joy and adversity coexisting in our worlds. What does it look like for you to be joyful in prosperity while also considering adversity, knowing that God has made one as well as the other? For me, this is where community becomes really important. Um, in a lot of wedding ceremonies, the pastor will often encourage the couple that their joy should be doubled and their sorrow should be divided. Hmm. And I have really seen that in my life. Um, I have been able to be a part of two families' experience, having children with um, trisomy disorders that had a fatal outcome. Hmm. Uh, one of those, the baby did pass very, very quickly after delivery. Um, but one of those is uh, the Purcell family here at First Pres, and Samuel will be one on October 30th. And it's just been such a joy to be a part of that and to see their faithfulness. Um, mm -hmm. I know she's going to be talking more about her experience yeah. of that um, at the women's conference that's coming up. Uh, my experience of that has really been uh, just being a part of their community um, helping where I can, but um, it's just been amazing to see that both of those families, even in the middle of um, grief and struggle, um, are willing to pour into my life as well, um, that they that they are joyful about parts of their life, um, that they are able to see where the Lord is meeting their needs, where he's blessing them through their community, um, and then also able to bear the burden of their grief, um, to understand that and cry with them. Mm. I, mean, I know you're shocked. I cry with them. <laughs> um, but just to, to know that my presence in that, in that situation helps alleviate the burden of the weight of the grief, not that they won't grieve, but mm. that it helps it feel uh, less heavy. Mm. Um, and it's just a beautiful thing when um, we can walk alongside each other and do that for each other. Mm, absolutely. Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate that. Um, I think for me, it's, um, it's always been pretty easy to see the, the positive side of things. I don't think I'm a Pollyanna, but at the same time, it, it does come easy for me to see the good, to, to rejoice. Um, I seek to have a thankful heart. Um, I'm learning. I don't need to spend all my energy trying to control and preserve my life. And, and one of my biggest challenges right now as a, a mom of adult children, raising grandchildren, is to fear less and to be willing to be open to more things. Um, they're raising those children. My children are making decisions. They're adults now. I don't have, well, I never had control, but I really <laughs> don't have control <laughs> now. And so wanting to choose wisely in the words that I give them when they ask, um, Regardless, though, remembering that God is with us. He, he's not going to leave me. He's not going to leave them. He's going to walk through everything with us. So, so that it, it, on the, is part of it. I, I think also I was so challenged by um, Recovering Eden, Zach Erswine's book of mm. when adversity comes, I need to sit in it. And because I, I am the avoider, that, mm. that was something that challenged me and, and just reminded me that you really need to marinate sometimes in those hard things. Like you were saying, Sarah, of just coming alongside and crying beside someone yeah. when they're in that hard place. Mm. And just accepting that, yes, that is from the Lord as well. 
even though it's hard. Right. So um, life under the sun is a God-inhabited life. He's immersed in all of it. And when I remember that, um, I was reminded of something John said Sunday of, um, you know, Lord, regardless, I trust you. Whatever you have for me, I will receive as your goodness. And, and John's little wording was, I want to always be falling into the hands of the Lord. Mm-hmm. I just, that's where I want to be. Joy and prosperity, that's, that's the easy part, right? That's, uh, um, that's the one, that's the part that's um, a little easier to get your, get my mind around. And it generally shows up for me as gratitude. Uh, it, it enables me to enjoy the present, not to go into that place of, well, this would be nice if only I had something more, you know. It actually shows itself as just my enjoying, you know, where I am in the moment. Just having deep contentment, gratitude for the space where I am and not longing for more, not comparing myself with others, just deep gratitude for the Lord's good gifts that he's allowing me to enjoy in that moment. Again, it's rare that we're not operating in that paradox where joy is attended by some adversity that requires our attention. Uh, It's not ever just one thing or the other. There's usually some complex blend of the, of the two. And so considering adversity keeps me grounded. It keeps me clinging to the Lord. It keeps me um, reaching out to him for help. And it helps me with my forgetfulness. I forget, prone to wonder, um, and how, you know, forget how much I need him and how helpless I am without him. So just being grateful helps me to consider the Lord's faithfulness and in my many adversities, as the hymnist writes, in the many dangers, toils, and snares. Um, adversity in the hands of a good God has eternal purpose and, and is creating an eternal weight of glory. I have to work harder some days to remember that than others. So our, our one ultimate source of wisdom continues to be God's word. And so that the great commandment to love the Lord our God and our neighbors as ourselves is a great launching point to act wisely in our culture and in our day-to-day lives. And as my sweet friend just said, life under the sun is inhabited by God. That is a, that is a beautiful, a beautiful way uh, to remember that. I love that statement as well. And with that note of encouragement, we hope you will join us again next week. Take us on a cool morning walk or for a trip to the grocery store. Angela Rogers and Susie Lovecamp will be joining us as we discuss Ecclesiastes 8. We'd love for you to listen in. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while she sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. When comforts are declining, he grants the soul again a season of clear shining. To cheer it after the 